You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Happy New Year. It is the first week of 2020, a new year, a new decade. I'm here with Jamie in studio. We are going to try something a little bit different this week. Um, I have a piece on Sunday night on 60 Minutes on Rafa Nadal. And uh, I spent um, almost a week in Mallorca with him during the off season, And so I figured we would talk about that in um, sort of previewing the episode. And I can talk a bit about uh, my, my experience with Rafa on his home turf. Um, I figured we'd start, though. Jamie, I'll bring you in now. Welcome. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, hi there. I, I figured we would start. I feel like we need sort of a, a blanket uh, disclaimer for tennis for the at least the immediate future, um, acknowledging what's going on in Australia right now. And it seems a little awkward and, and perhaps tone deaf to sort of jump right into talking about uh who are you picking for Australian yeah, exactly. Open? Yeah, exactly. Can you believe what Kyrgios did while um, <laughs> that the country obviously is is in a disaster situation? Um, we are recording this on Tuesday morning, so um, this is obviously a, a fluid situation. But it's um, it's, it's really quite uh, quite gutting to see what's going on there. I think we're, we're up to you know, more than half a billion animals ha- have died, and um, more than two dozen people. And I think the, right. this, the last check uh, was bigger than the state of West Virginia, the amount of uh, of land that's been affected by these fires. Um, a question I've gotten several times. Um, most recently, I, I did a radio show yesterday, and they, they asked, should we cancel the Australian Open? Right. Um, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I mean, the biggest thing is the, the winds blowing mm-hmm. the, the smoke towards, you know, the larger cities like Melbourne. So it's... Um, you know, it's it's a little bit scary. I mean, if you're a player, attendees, you know, people over the tournament, it's really something con- to consider. I mean, we saw it with, um, you know, the fires in California here, how that smoke can just really carry into a lot of places. And so I think it's something that they should consider. I mean, if they can't get 
anything under control and it's hard to prevent that. You never know which way the winds are going to blow or how something, you know, sweeps in. It could really have a um, effect and kind of create a, a really um, unsafe experience for fans, players and everyone else. So, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think I see this sort of on two planes and one of them is just simply the, the optics of it all. And is it distasteful? Right. Is, is it even, you know, is it obscene to have this fun outdoor sporting event when a few miles from here, the, the country's burning? And I think that's a tough argument to make. Because I think you could, you could just as easily say, listen, we need this now more than ever. And sports is supposed to be diversion and distraction. And right. And what better way to, exactly. you know, raise money and raise awareness mm-hmm. than putting these superstars on a stage nearby where they can, you know, have a worldwide platform to speak about this. Yeah, there's exactly. there's arguments on both sides for that. I, I think, um, I, I mean, I think that's that's a loser argument. I think the winning argument is just health and safety. And right. if this is impacting, yeah, the, the competitors are the ones running around in toxic air for, for hours at a time, but also the, the fans and the officials and ball kids. I, I also, I, I've seen several references now to, well, at least there are three indoor courts. I'm not sure that, solves much of an issue, especially in the early days of a tournament. I mean, yes, it will allow you to play matches indoors and TV can get their fix, but I'm not sure that's any way to run a sporting event, at least one with 128 players in, in a men's and women's draw. I think this, I mean, this is unprecedented. I mean, I remember they, they canceled the marathon after Hurricane Sandy. Mm-hmm. That's right. about the closest thing I could remember offhand to a natural disaster really impacting a sporting event. Remember the baseball playoffs went on after 9-11 and it was right, just this right, great right. source of unity. I mean, I think um, that wasn't really a health and safety issue the way this is. But I, I don't know if that this area, as you say, the, the winds are a big factor here. And if the air quality is not fit for uh, for competition in sports, I don't know what you do. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think you're playing 254 matches in three indoor courts. No, I mean, think about when I mean, we see it almost every year at the Australian Open with the heat. And, you know, we have heat breaks and special rules in order to accommodate players because of the crazy temperatures and and the sun and things like that. And this is almost very similar to heat or rain, but with an added level, you know, because not only are the players being affected, but you have fans simply sitting there breathing in the air that they can be affected. And I think there's a lot of issues generally with safety if something would cloud an area and you know create unvisible places for you know security reasons I think there's a lot of things to consider and I don't know to your point if indoor courts are the solution here or you know this is not like a rain where you can reschedule a match or heat we can go early or late I mean there's probably not a point where there's going to be a a break in the smoke that you can even predict so I mean I I think you're onto something though I mean I think you need some sort of objective measures here the same way they have the various indexes to decide when the extreme heat policy comes into play i think there's going to have to be some sort of index and if the air quality gets below a certain threshold or above a certain threshold as it was um no one's going to be able to play tennis i mean i think there are some liability issues here right and i mean i think the bigger issue here is just this does not seem to be a one-off and i think we all civilization needs to confront man-made climate change, but I think sports in particular, and I think, honestly, I think in Australia, I mean, you read these stories, Australia, I think, ranked 57th out of 57 countries in uh, their response to man-made climate change. Um, if I'm the Australian Open, a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, there was there was a big push to move this event to Asia, 
and the country and the governing bodies and Tennis Australia, they all really rallied behind this effort to keep the event in Melbourne. If we're talking about existential challenges, I would say uh, man-made climate change ought to be next on their list now that we've assured this event isn't going to uh, to Beijing or Shanghai. But uh, anyway, it, it does sort of cast, I mean, it quite literally casts a cloud over this uh, this tournament. And I think that, look, well, in all likelihood, the tournament's going to go on. We're going to be talking about matches and upsets and draws. But I do think we sort of need this blanket disclaimer that, yes, all of us covering this do realize that it does pale in comparison to what's what's going on in Australia. Yeah, um, I think it's it's going to be, regardless, um, it's going to be a, as you say, big cloud. It's going to hang over um, and really be a big factor in this tournament. Um, so we'll see what happens. Um, on another unhappy note, I'll give you a quick, <laughs> quick, uh, quick 30 seconds. I want to acknowledge David Stern, who um, is the longtime NBA commissioner, 30-year stint as NBA commissioner, um, who I had the good fortune of, of, of getting to know quite well, especially fairly recently, and he was a huge tennis fan. He passed away on, on New Year's Day. Unfortunately, he had um, a brain hemorrhage in late in 2019 and, and never recovered. Um, a lot of stories are coming out. I mean, a lot of people, this is uh, a, a life force and um, a, a towering figure in sports, but also, and this is, I, I think I tweeted this out, this is hardly the first line in his obituary, but also a really diehard tennis fan who would go to the Open, yes, but also would watch Tennis Channel and and text about how come you guys are switching to the, uh, you know, Batista Goots in the third set. And right. Why are you guys <laughs> switching? Um, a, a real diehard tennis fan, someone who I wish, and I sort of joked with him about this, I wish he'd been, um, you know, he'd watched Tennis Channel uh, intently and intensively. And I always said he could be a great consultant uh, to the network after running the uh, NBA yeah, so well right. for 30 years. But um, RIP David Stern, who, um, a, a, again, absolute soaring, towering, figure in in sports and sports business and sports and technology and the globalization of sports but also uh, one of the good guys one of the good guys and one of the one of the tennis tribe um all right on a happier note i thought i would do things a little bit differently um i think i mentioned in the intro that i had uh the good fortune in december of, of spending almost a week in um in mallorca with with rafa nadal for a piece we're putting together for 60 minutes that will air Sunday night, January 12th on CBS, and also will um, be available on 60minutes.com online if you can't tune in. And um, it's, you know, I mean, I covered Rafa for, I think I wrote my first story on him for Sports Illustrated before he won the French in, in 05. So he would have been 18 years old, and I saw him in the Rome Players Lounge and uh, wrote a piece for Sports Illustrated. And ever since then, um, we've had a very cordial relationship. I, mean, right. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say we were tight but uh <laughs> certainly you know i enjoyed covering him and we were professional with one another right but um getting to visit with him on his home turf and getting to see him not in a tournament context not in a player's lounge or not during an event when he's got a match the next day and he's i mean seeing some way and seeing an athlete away from their place of work and seeing them during the off season when he's still practicing every day but he's not worried about hydration and matches and who he might play next really made for uh, for a much different kind of interaction and um he i mean i don't know how to say this uh i mean he was he was great he was he was uh, i had a terrific time with him we had a very very long wide-ranging interview and, and spent time at his academy and he took me to a, a plot of land where he's building a house in mallorca and it was really um i mean it's, as often as i've covered as much as i've seen him play I'd never had an interaction with him quite like this and um, really came away 
wildly, wildly impressed. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I, uh, the first thing I wanted to know, uh, and I think you know everyone would sort of get a taste of this and, and should go watch on, on Sunday night, but I wanted you to set the scene for us because you see a little bit of it in, in the piece. Um, you know, in Majorca, as you said, he takes you to this plot of land, but specifically to the small village where he grew up. But when you when you fly there and the can you give us a sense of the the town, and how um, just the vibe of it. And I mean, when you got there, did you, uh, you know, ring the doorbell and knock on the door and, and Rafa open the door? Or was it a bit more organized and, and formal? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, I'd never been to Mallorca before. And I feel like I really got a sense of him visiting him on his turf that you would never get at, at a tournament or, or covering him sort of conventionally on, on the tour. Mallorca, I'd never been there before. It's an absolutely stunning island. It's a very popular tourist destination in the summer, sure. but I, I went in the dead of December, and it was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not um, just some fancy beach town. It was, you know, maybe 50, 60 degrees. Okay. He practiced outdoors, mm-hmm. but, you know, uh, you could, you'll see in the piece, I mean, sort of, we're wearing a, a vest. Right, um, right. So I went with um, my trusty producers, Natalie Summer and, and Vanessa Fica, and we um, did a lot of our business at the academy, where not only that's where Rafa trains, mm-hmm. it's about five minutes from where he grew up, and you really get a sense of just how, sort of in, in the best way, just how clannish the, the Nadal family is. So you'd be sitting there, and it was like his, his player's box at a tournament passing through. So there's his mom, and there's his dad, and there's his sister, and there's his uncle. It might as well be the, yeah, the family well, house. Exactly. Um, and there, there was a family house uh, as well. But this island, you realize it's it's not easy to get to, and yet it's so much a part of who he is, and he never, even as this prodigy, I mean, people forget. I mean, this was sort of the LeBron James of tennis. I mean, 16, 17 years old, this guy's coming up, and he's the real deal. He's 17 years old, and he beats Roger Federer the first time they play in 2004. Roger Federer's number one in the world and won the previous major and won Wimbledon the year before that. Here comes a 17-year-old, and he beats Roger Federer in their first head-to-head match. This was, I I mean, I don't know if tennis has really seen a phenom, especially not on the men's side, 
quite like Nadal, where the first year he played the French Open, he was the favorite to win the tournament, and he did win the tournament. We haven't seen that in uh, in 15 years. And even as his career was ascending, there was never any consideration that he would leave this island, that right. he would go to an academy, that he would stop being coached by his uncle. And you really have a sense of, I mean, the, the cliche is how grounded he is, but you really get a sense of sort of it's it's an island, and it really instructs who he is and informs who he is. And I, I mean, I feel like there are two central tensions to Nadal. I'm not sure I necessarily cracked either of them, but one of them is how can someone so intense who competes, competes so fiercely come from this laid-back island in the middle of the Mediterranean? I was joking with, with Carlos Moya. I don't know if this—I think this will make the piece, but Carlos Moya said— you know, I come from the same place, and I was about ten percent <laughs> as in, as intense as Rafael. Right. He's the weird one, not me. He's he's the exception. I'm the Mallorca guy. It's, and it's not a bustling town that produces uh, intense, exactly. hardcore people. This is like, uh, you know, I'm I'm the most intense guy in the office, and I come from this beach resort in the Bahamas. Right. Um, and so I think it's it's sort of a it's a bit of a, a punchline that yeah. you have this very chill very sort of elegant. I mean, I, I really like Mallorca. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not some just tourist destination. I mean, it really is a beautiful, rich place. Historical. Historical. And, yeah. and there's beaches, yes, but there also it's like where we stayed, it was like Tuscany up in the hills. I mean, it's just gorgeous. Right. But it's not the place where you would think this hard-charging, intense competitor would come from. Um, and then the other thing about Nadal is just he is this ferocious competitor, always has been and still remains to this day. And yet the minute the match stops, he is this sweetheart. Mm-hmm. And not just he, he's nice to people and he's, you know, uh, sociable and chair. I think the whole like, sort of competitive engine turns down. I mean, I joked about uh, we, we talked a lot about Federer. And at one point I said, to her, do you, you know, I sort of was bracing for this. And you know, do you mind talking about Federer? And he said, Abs- I wish I could find, you know, let me try to find the transcript here while I have it. But. He basically said, it would be my pleasure. Ask me anything you want to know about Roger. Right. It's, it's my pleasure to talk about him. Not Usually athletes get a little resentful when you ask them about other athletes. Hey, wait, I thought this interview was about me. Right. Sometimes they, you know. Or they just, they, you know, they give don't want to. pro forma. They'll give you, they'll go through the motions. Here, he literally is smile to his face and ask me anything you want about Roger. It would be my pleasure to talk about him. In, in, in timestamp this, too, I mean, in the middle of his offseason, as you said. I mean, you visited him in a place where he is not usually accepting guests, or I'm sure people don't come, you know, searching for him there. And he's kind of in in chill-out mode and, you know, recharge mode, getting ready for the 2020 season. And he still uh, had the, you know, willingness to speak about not only, you know, himself, (laughs) but his competitors who he probably is trying to not think about or not think about in that way uh, for a few more weeks. So definitely says a lot. I said, uh, I mean, at one point I said, look, you're a sports fan. Like, you realize how absurd this is that he he said my relationship with Rod, I want to find this here just because it was such a beautiful sentiment. But he basically said, you know, it's it's an elegant, respectful rivalry. Um, We're at a point in our life where we're able to value things besides winning, Mm-hmm. All the things we've enjoyed, all the things we've lived, we developed something that are really special. We have a special story. We're still enjoying it. We've both enjoyed this common story apart from being rivals. I think we've done many positive things for our foundation. Um, at one point, I said, you realize how absurd this is. Like, you're a sports fan. Like, Barcelona and Madrid do not consider each other elegant rivals. Like, right. the Red Sox and the Yankees do not say to each other, <laughs> like, I would be more than happy to talk about the other. And he basically said, you know, 
this is something we're both comfortable with, and I think they're both very proud that they've built this rivalry and it hasn't ever seeped into to bitterness. Um, I think, I mean, you, it's funny because you mentioned going to him. I'll tell you one interesting story. Um, at one point he sort of said, are you, are you staying at the academy? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, we're actually, you're staying at a hotel um, away from the academy. And he sort of said, well, why, why wouldn't you stay at the academy? And I thought he was insulted that we weren't staying at the academy. And I explained um, this was again through through his um, through his sort of manager Benito. I explained, you know, just sort of American j- journalism, and there's there's sort of a a bit of sort of ethically, it would be a little weird to right, stay right, at the property right. owned by the subject. You sort of need that detachment. And when he heard the word ethics, mm-hmm. it really sunk in. I mean, I think he was he was really pleased that there was this code and he mm-hmm. could really respect that we were not just freeloading or we were not just taking the easy way out. I think when he sort of understood that there was this ethical code and this, this journalistic code that was being followed, it really meant a lot to him. It really made sense. And I think it really was something he respected. He lives by a code. Um, I think it's a, a fairly iron code. It really means a lot to him to do things the right way. Reputation really matters to him. This is not someone who cuts corners. This is someone who's very cautious about possibly offending people mm-hmm. and it expresses itself in his tennis and I think um, people ask me sort of how, how did the interview go and I one of my responses was he treated this interview like he treated a match which is once once the camera started rolling once the ball was in play very professional he was a total pro he there was nothing pro forma there were mm-hmm. no cliche answers there yeah. was nothing that he sort of went through the motions, he started answers and then really thought about things. Right. Um, it was really, and I think I think it helped, We you'll see in the piece that we, I asked the questions in English and he answered in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, um, I think that was really a good decision by the producers, by mm-hmm. Natalie and Vanessa, because I think in his native tongue, he had a bit more comfort and freedom. I think when you speak, I mean, you, you know, anyone that speaks a second language knows this, you sort of resort to pet phrases and you get a little insecure about what you're saying. So maybe right. you constrict what you're saying um i spoke in english he spoke in spanish i think that really helped free him up but this was you know sometimes you do you hear it on the podcast sometimes you do interviews and yeah maybe you don't connect quite so well or maybe you talk over each other or you talk past each other this was really um this this i mean he was terrific this was really probably 90 minutes of just wide-ranging talk and i think i was thinking about it too and i think that um i think he really relished talking about broader topics than he usually does. I mean, I sort of said, listen, this is 60 Minutes. This is a broad show. People watching, they may have heard of you. They may not have heard of you. This is not a tennis show. And you, right. you and I know each other. We get into the nitty-gritty of exactly. everything, yeah. Exactly. Um, you and I may know each other from tennis, but I'm not asking you about Chris Kermode and the ATP, and I'm not asking you about equal prize money and right, whether or right. not Zverev is finally going to emerge. This is very broad. This is about you. This is about your upbringing. This is about your, your governing principles. A little bit of Federer, but no. Nah. A little bit of Federer, <laughs> but, uh, but really very little tennis talk. Right. And I think um, I think we forget that sometimes, that you go to these press conferences and it was, you know, she was picking on your forehand and next up you play Kerber, you guys played in Stuttgart. You kind of need that when you're covering an event. But I think for these athletes – to have an interview where they really express themselves as people, what they believe in, who they are, who are the important figures in their lives. A broad interview like that, I think really sometimes is much more comfortable for the athlete than dissecting what they just did on the court 20 minutes before. 
Was there anyone or anything else about Mallorca or, or his town in general that gave you any additional insight into his personality or did you learn anything about any stories about his upbringing that his parents or mm-hmm. um you know you obviously hear about uncle tony and uh you mentioned his his other uncle who was a soccer player uh, for barcelona and the spain national team you know in the piece but um did he have any other figures or any other like moments in his life that were significant that he he spoke with you about while he was in that place where those things happened yeah, that's, that's a great question. I'll give you two. One of them, you said it, is his uncle. We all know about Uncle Tony, and Uncle Tony's the one who converted him from a righty to a lefty. And, um, but he has another uncle, Miguel Angel, who played for the Spanish national team and played for Barcelona. And everyone's, well, it's the beast of Barcelona, and Rafa takes on his characteristics. But having an uncle who was a professional athlete and seeing how this guy trained and seeing how he balanced work and life and how i mean i can again as long as i have the transcript here why don't i uh why don't i get why listen to me when you can listen to uh to rafa my uncle was an excellent athlete in the world of sports he played for barcelona for nine years he took uh, part in the world cup the experience my family with my uncle was very useful i was able to live my experiences he was able to live his experiences with normality i learned so many things from my uncle he's exceptional he's an excellent person excellent human being He's won many victories in the world of soccer, but he also managed to have a normal life, a family life, close to his people. For me, that was such a good example. Having someone close to me that had achieved a lot of success in the sports world was helpful, and I could talk to him in complicated moments, and he could help me. So he, he had someone from his village, from his town, mm-hmm. in his family, who was a professional athlete on a huge stage, saw all the success in a worldwide sport, and still the guy was able to probably have a lot of times with Rafa himself, but be a family man. And that seems like it was very impactful on him, not only as a kid, but now as he starts, you know, wants to start a family and and, and as he gets a little older. Exactly. And and came back to Mallorca. And I think... So he's there now. He's there now. And I don't think he ever really left. I mean, he obviously left to to play and to train, but he never moved his base. And I think that's something, too. I think when you're from, you know, we see this in small town America as well. There's a real draw to go to the city, go. It's easier to get to if you're living in New York or L.A. The more training options, you don't have to switch planes. I mean, everything you sort of go through. And Nadal never even this... This island is so much a part of who he is, and the family has been there for generations and generations. Where the the plot of land where he showed me where he's building a home with with his wife is right across the bay from from Uncle Tony and his parents That's and the, right. the family. So they used to live in a. I, I joked that they used to live in an apartment building all together. Sort of every generation had its own floor, and they all lived together. And now, instead of vertical, it's horizontal. And now <laughs> they just still the live together. It's just across the way. Yeah. Um, but um, no, but it it really it it sort of gave me some insight into how he competes, the way he competes, what his base is like. And also, I, th- I think he's really reached a point, and I'm not, I'm not sure he ever wasn't there, but sort of reputation means so much to him. Mm-hmm. And the fact that people say, you haven't changed, and the fact that he can go home and he's just Rafa Nadal, the dude who came from here, and he's not a celebrity. He said that. He's like, I'm much less comfortable as, you know, I'm, I'm, he's not a celebrity, even though the town 
has and he has his no ambition to be exactly, and he has no ambition of being a celebrity. And I think that's one of the real draws to the place. Um, this obviously, is, I mean, it's hard to talk about Nadal too much without contrast. We have this natural reflexive urge to contrast everything with Federer. They both, in some ways, end up in very similar places, but they just take extremely different paths to get there. And Federer's, we see him in a tuxedo, and he's at benefits, and he has celebrity friends, and he's this globetrotter. I think he and Nadal actually end up in a very similar place, not just 20 to 19, not just a tennis place, but I think they both really care about perception and image right. and giving and family. I think their core values are actually very, very similar, but they express that and act on that in, in very different ways. Well, to your point, I mean, he was saying how they've sort of grown up together, and I wonder how much the fact that neither of them really you know, veered off the path as they were climbing up the ranks, how that sort of balanced the other out. I mean, when you see your greatest competitor or your rival or the person who's close in age to you that's coming up as well doing good things and having a good head on his shoulders how much does that push you to do the same and I wonder it'd be it'll be interesting in maybe like 20 years to sit down with the with you know the two of them at at 50 something and kind of have them reflect on that uh, once they finally (laughs) do retire. We might need 20 years, though. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, that's the other thing, too, that, uh, you know, in in the piece, and we talked a bit about Wimbledon in 2007 and 2008, and you sort of have to pause yourself and say, it was more than a decade ago, and these guys are still two of the three top players in the world. Um, I think think that Roth and Roger long ago resigned themselves to the fact that, A, they're both better for the existence of the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think it's a coincidence they're both still playing. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I also think they realize that, look, we're bracketed together for life, so we may as well embrace kind this. of embrace this and, and ride this out. Because it's like Chrissy and Martina, um, who similarly have, have embraced it. I think um, they both sort of came to this conclusion that you, you and me, buddy, uh, 20 years from now, they're going to be wanting to do documentaries, sitting us down to watch the Wimbledon <laughs> 2008 final right. together. So we may as well embrace this. Um, I, I also think, uh, no, I don't know. I mean, I, I was going to say this this whole sort of idea of, of coming from Mallorca and coming from this island in some ways was a secret weapon where he could go and escape and be normal and there weren't these temptations and he's not a celebrity and he wasn't having his schedule booked during the off season with appearances. Um, but I also just think um, this really seeing this family unit up close and in person. And sometimes we, we see families at events and we see them around the table in the players' lounge or we see them in the box when they're cheering. But to sort of see this family all in one place, there was a dinner, sort of a celebratory dinner of his of his whole team where he um, allowed us to bring our cameras to that too. Mm-hmm. And he really has turned tennis into into a team sport. And there really is a... He, he may be the only guy out there hitting the forehands and backhands, but this is really... Um, really quite an enterprise but um anyway it uh it's a lot of fun i really uh i really enjoyed it and as much as i've seen nadal play i really came away with um sort of a new a new appreciation for him again very different to see an athlete in these kinds of circumstances in on their terms during an off season there weren't time constraints there weren't time pressures he didn't have to worry about his match the next day i think that made uh, that made a big difference but uh the piece airs sunday night i'll do my plugging uh good soldier plugging go right ahead um sunday night 
I guess after football on uh, on CBS, and also you can watch it on um, CBS.com if you can't tune in live. And we'll have uh, we'll have a little bit on on SI.com too. So we'll have some outtakes on, all around. Uh, on you, SI.com. Can, you can get Everyone all can, the Nadal you exactly. need. Everyone can can get their Rafa fix. Um, but uh, all right, well, let, let, next week we will do some Australian previewing again. I will repeat our disclaimer that uh, all of this is done with. Um, with real sadness and empathy for what's going on in Australia and a recognition that there are matters more important than uh, whether Dominic Team will break through. No offense to Dominic Team, But, um, no, I, mean, I think throughout the next few weeks it's going to be a bit of a challenge to keep tennis in some perspective uh, given what's going on in Australia. But um, we'll, we'll try and, and bear that in mind. Um, all right. Thanks. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, thank you for sharing your uh, experience with us. It's uh Travels with Rafa. Um, All right. That does it for this week. We will have a guest, we believe, next week. We'll talk 2020 Australian Open. Uh, Have a good week, everyone. Keep the suggestions coming. As always, you can subscribe. You can leave a review. iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your uh, finer podcasts. Um, Talk to you in seven days. See you, everyone.